Guess who's back? It's the real Wrestle Pro. Ginger Jedi mind tricks teach you all that he knows. Had nobody in charge, and he's got all the news. Real talk, straight shooting interviews. Join the queue, put you in a submission. Twenty bucks. Oh wow. Nelson. Okay, shows making flights. Still got time for a podcast. Buck never stops, and he's gonna let you know that. Hey everybody, welcome to the Pat Buck Show. I'm here at the Creator Pro Studios. Uh, KM will be with me on the interview. Today we have a special guest, good friend of mine, uh, fellow ex or furloughed or whatever the term is, WWE producer, talent, wrestler, Hurricane Shane Helms. We talk, talk about some MMA. We talk about all things wrestling and his plans for the future. So hope you enjoy the interview. But before we get to that, just a reminder, we have a Patreon now. If you go to patreon.com backslash patbuckshow, three different tiers for you, whether you want to just kind of participate in the action, join as a booker, or if you're an established pro wrestler looking to kind of take their game to the next level, uh, there's a lot of options for you. So again, it's patreon.com slash patbuckshow. Please enjoy the interview. Hey everybody, welcome to the Pat Buck Show. I'm your host, Pat Buck. Special guest. Every single week, <laughs> Kevin Matthews, KM. What's up, guys? And this week, we have a dear friend on the show, my former work colleague, hopefully work colleague again in the future, Hurricane Shane Helms. What's going on, man? What's going on, guys, man? Good to catch up with you. How's your quarantine going? I've been preparing for this all my life. <laughs> I relocated to a farm about four years ago, so the family farm is pretty big, and when I'm not on the road, we're pretty isolated anyway, so... Uh, until the furlough happened, it wasn't a big change or an inconvenience for me. Oh, wait a second. So you, the house that I was at, you moved out of that house? Yeah. Oh, okay. Bigger, huh? A farmhouse? Uh, no, the house itself isn't bigger, but the, the family farm acreage-wise is about 120 acres. So, you know, now with the little kids and everything, they can just run around and be animals. Are you farming? Are, are you doing the crop deal? Are you farming out there? I had a couple years where I did. That's just work. You know, <laughs> you know, that just going off, picking them off the vines, that, that shit's easy. <laughs> Taking it from a little, you know, tilling the ground and all of that, that's a lot of work. Uh, we're probably going to plant uh, within the next week, though, because normally it's in the 1st of May that you plant, but the uh, unexpected frost was going to come up because it's 2020 and fucking nothing works the same way it's supposed to anymore. So uh, we're kind of working around that, around that frost and we'll plant. Uh, probably within the next week and a half. Is everything open down there? How's North Carolina? Not everything. You know, there's some stuff that's opening. They're in phases. Um, but North Carolina, you know, North Carolina, a bunch of knuckleheads are going to do whatever they want to anyway, no matter what. So um, I, I just stay away from them and stay home. I wear my mask at home. But in North Carolina, I, re I remember when I lived there in 2005, and the one thing that I really remember about it is it snowed there one time, and it was the most minimal amount of snow to the point where it wasn't even basically sticking on the floor. You couldn't even write your name in the snow. It was emergency shutdown across the board. People were stocking up almost as if there was COVID going on and the streets were empty and it was crazy. They went into like panic mode over nothing, like literally nothing. So I'd imagine, are they taking it? Are they adhering to social distancing and everything? Are they, is, is it pretty quiet over there or are people out there kind of doing what they want. We had a couple good we had a couple good weeks where it seemed like everybody was adhering 
but then it turned into y'all not gonna tell me what to do now it's just a bunch of rednecks running around i'm not going to live in fear i was just having this conversation with somebody and i was like well you wear shoes don't you <laughs> you know you that's not living in fear just being smart you know if i look both ways when i cross the street it doesn't mean i'm living in fear you know you just having common sense about things but but yeah you're right with uh we get one snowflake in north carolina and they go and they buy all the bread all the eggs and all the milk because apparently people down south think you can live off of french toast for the rest of your life because that's all they buy so since it's a whole thing going on i don't know um obviously i think people know shane and i were are i don't know what the word is producers for wwe and i got to see you every week because we both were on the raw brands and uh, I don't know about you, but I think the thing I miss the most actually is the people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I like that job. And as you know, uh, without going into too much detail about it, it has this very stressful moments. Sure. For fucking sure. <laughs> One of the most stressful <laughs> positions in the company, I, I feel like. Um, but yeah, I, I do miss a lot of the people. You know, I, I, mean, I don't miss all of them. There's a couple of them I enjoy not seeing. But, uh, you know, we were, because that producer uh, group of people started had really started to started to grow, you know, and a lot of us were starting to get a lot, you know, really close. So like you say, it's just people that you used to seeing and then out of a sudden you you not you don't see them anymore at all. So yeah. The one thing I liked about the you know the job was that it felt like, you know, it's it's different being a talent. You're always kind of competing and trying to make yourself stand out. But I feel like our our group that we worked with, everybody had you know had each other's backs and we're always, you know, there's times I, I, I lent on you, you know, there's, there's times where we kind of all just collaborated and we were always kind of looking out for each other. I thought that was one of the rare things you find in wrestling. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it. You know, I mean, I had my first little bit, my introduction to being a producer in TNA. And I think, Kevin, you came in on the tail end of that. So, I mean, it's just a position that I, I, I like. And I mean, I think if you have a love for the business that that's, that never leaves and my love for the business is never going to leave you're always going to want to be involved in it and as the body started to ache and tear down a little bit uh, being a producer de definitely helped with that you know not taking bumps but also i i miss wrestling so much and pat i don't know if, if this was uh if you had this effect or not but um seeing that ring every single week and I miss being in there so much. <laughs> that was a little tough for me at times. Ah, it's Yeah, I think so, big time. <laughs> I mean, I think what my favorite part of the gig, you know, granted, we're, we're planning, we're giving feedback, we're ideas, collaborating, doing all that stuff, but actually, like, getting in the ring and, you know, working with talent and showing them a different hold or, or just kind of working out or doing things. Like, I miss that, man. That's, that was the fun part, anything physical. For, for definitely, I, I was uh, I just did Jericho's podcast last week or whenever it was, and I told him I said it's like being a drug addict and you got to look at this huge pile of drugs every Monday, because <laughs> because I never like retired, I never had this, and I never even said I was retired. I just kind of my last scheduled match kind of happened, and I didn't even realize it was my last scheduled match until like a couple weeks before, mm -hmm. and then it happened, and I'm like, man, it's over, and but. It was only over because WWE didn't want me to do anymore. You know, right. they wanted me to focus on the job, and I understand that. And you know, they wanted me to limit the autograph signings that I was doing outside. But, um, but yeah, I never really hung the boots up or hung hung the coat up, the cape up in, in my 
in, in my situation. So yeah, I, I still miss it. But when the uh, COVID thing started happening, I did get back on the treadmill and started to trim down a little bit. So. All right. Well, what about now? I mean, we don't really know how. I, one thing I, I tell a lot of people that a big part of our our job was the live events. You know, essentially, like everybody's at TV, but like when the live events were happening, producers were essentially in charge, and we had two different crews. You know, Raw crews over here on the East Coast, and SmackDown's crews on the West Coast, or whatever. And you know, it's a numbers thing. They, they, you know, they. We understood they, they trim back or the furlough, whatever it be. But now that like, we don't know when we're gonna, they're going to be in stadiums again or when things are going to start booming, I think, obviously, independent, smaller shows are going to come back. So do you see yourself during this time period getting back in the ring? Have you thought about it? Or? You know, I, I think it might take a while for WWE to get back to where it was, you know, in terms of personnel and getting a lot of events uh, you know, back back to where they were. And I think in the meantime, I think uh, if everything opens up, you know, or once everything does open up, I think the indies are going to be booming. You know, there's a lot of talent uh, available now that, you know, indie fans haven't seen that they had only seen them in a WWE ring. Um, so you got a lot of that. And I think people are going to be itching just to put on shows. You know, a lot of wrestlers, you know, they're just sitting at home and I don't think that's the mentality of a performer or, or of an entertainer period. You know, you don't have that mentality. I'm just going to sit at home and not do shit. It's driving us crazy. And I mean, I think that's the case for a lot of people, you know, we're not really built to just sit around and do nothing. So uh, once everything opens up, I think the floodgates are going to open up, but I definitely, uh, back to your question, I definitely see myself doing some stuff. You know, I've, I've always uh, wanted to go to Antarctica you know, kind of had this uh, discussion recently by doing a show in Antarctica. So it's pretty far. I don't know if you guys realize that. <laughs> so I'll put I'll put him on the spot, or I'll put Lance on the spot. So before um, Lance, I, you were already there, but like before Lance and I came on board as producers, uh, we run shows in Alaska, and it's actually Kevin's baby now. I'm completely hands off, and. We reached out. I thought you were involved. <laughs> so I had like a, you know, I'm not sure if you still do, but like <laughs> you've probably worked everyone on it, but you know, your wrestling bucket list of people you really want to have a match with or whatever. So I, I told Kevin, like, man, I, I, I want to work Lance. I really do. And I, I don't really, I knew Lance lightly, not, not as well as I do now. Now I talk to him all the time. And uh, we reached out to Alaska. He's like, oh, that's the one state I haven't worked. And it was looking good, looking good. And then he just said no. So, um, but... You put out the tweet, uh, the, intercontinental, the intercontinental title is, is in a tournament now, and you said you would like to represent Antarctica, and, and it reminded me that we like to do a lot of weird things just to say we did them, <laughs> so I reached out to a naval base uh, trying to figure out if there's any way, and I wasn't thinking like a full show, I was thinking of more like, you know, it could be a... 24-7, couple punches, roll up, that's the match. Was there any way to get a match there of some sort? And they never replied. So if they do reply, you're, you're definitely booked. That's it, I'm in. Because <laughs> I've, I've, I've been on six continents. So I, I want to go to Antarctica and fight a penguin at least to say that I've been all over the world. Well, I, w I was telling Pat before, I said... Uh, the only thing that I know of, because it's been a bucket list thing of mine, is to take that cruise, the cruise ship that goes to Antarctica. I was like, 
if you kind of incorporate like, you know, a rock and wrestling type deal with the cruise that goes to Antarctica, you have a ring on there, the people are already on the boat. Technically, once that ship docks in Antarctica, there's a wrestling show in Antarctica. That would be the way to pull it off. I mean, I'd be crazy enough to try to do something like that, but it's that, that, that's a stretch. But to pull that off, that would be huge. Uh, and I actually, that cruise is expensive as hell though. The cheapest I saw was 6,700. The most expensive I saw was 15,000. But, uh, I mean, but again, it's like people are like, well, that's too expensive. Well, then you're never going to get to see Antarctica. So it's like, <laughs> you know, there's only one way to go there. And that's the only way, unless you become a researcher and get stationed there. But other than that, but I was thinking before when you said, uh, that you started doing a little producing when you first came into TNA uh, Impact, and that's when I came in. You know the first thing you said to me, and we've obviously known each other for a million years, you, do you remember the very first thing you said to me when I walked in? Uh, I do. You said, so we lost Matt and Jeff Hardy, and they hired you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's even. That's an even trade. <laughs> or you might have said like, Oh, we're doomed, or he said something, or we're after. or he said something. I remember that, though. The first thing he said, you looked at me, you shake your head, and you said, okay, we lost the hotties, and they hired you. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then I got caught in the shrapnel heat because of the heat with uh, Jared and the hotties. Ah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, that, oh, that got resolved eventually. Everyone works together. We're all a big, happy family, the wrestling business. We all love each other. Look, Pat, you're like this. Kevin got mad because we were, we were on Facebook, buddies, and uh, Kobe Covington lost a fight to Usman, and I agreed with the decision, but he his damn panties were in a bunch. Kevin's mad about it, but I don't know he's really mad. Huh. So I was going on. I was just talking about, man, okay, you know, I thought that he won one, but Kevin is mad as shit about it. And then he starts, like, being mean to me because I don't agree with his opinion. I was being mean? You told me. Normally, I'm the jackass. So I can get. I will accept the blame. But in this particular time, I'm just talking about the fight. I thought that uh, Kobe. I thought Kobe lost that fight. I just did. And it's not that I dislike Kobe and dislike his fighting, but he lost that fight, and the judges agreed with me. And your ass got mad. I was like, "Well, fuck you then." And um, what? So what? then the next time I hear from, I don't hear nothing from this guy. Right? New Year's Eve, the night. We're in for WWE, uh, sends me to New York City, Times Square. I'm producing that segment with Mojo, Truth, Steve Harvey. We're having a blast. Um, the ball drops, and now it's, uh, so now it's 2020 officially. And I, pick, I get a, a text from Kevin. I got Kevin in my phone as Kevin DGAF Matthews. It's been like that for years because I told him that should be his name years ago. And, uh, and he's inviting me to his uh, club. And I was like, what, are we friends again? Or something like that. And he goes, man, that heat was so last year. <laughs> Dude, it's like 12.05 it's like when he said that shit. And it was the absolute best. I laughed so hard. I was like, all right, man, we, we, so, we so good. We so cool. I always said MMA is my politics. Like where people like the best of friends, they start, they're on opposite sides of the fence and then they really collide heads. I realized, like, again, and I'm like Tyson Kidd's one of my closest friends, but we're on opposite sides of the fence. He's a big time Conor McGregor guy. And I was like a big time either Diaz fan or when he fought Khabib. And then, like, 
we try to like kind of meet in the middle with that, but then like we start really butting heads and then it really comes to the point where you would almost think we hate each other and we're gonna kill each other. We're like, yeah, you don't know crap. You're not even a real fan, shut up. And then the next day we're like, yo, what's up? How, how you doing, man? How's it going? That was a good fight last night, right? Like, yeah, that was cool. <laughs> we've, we've done that multiple times. I don't think I've ever done that over MMA. In politics, I will, but in MMA, because for me, politics is the politics is morals. That's generally where I draw the line. Uh, but with never with MMA until until you got all mad because Kobe got his got beat up by Usman. Well, you're leaving out the fact that I didn't even say one curse word, and you told me "go f yourself" <laughs> was your exact words to me. And then I just kept responding, saying, "You know what? Look, <laughs> nah. I just kept responding, saying, whatever I said." Whatever I said, I responded underneath it. So I'm just gonna go and f myself right now and stuff like that. So, but yeah, but that, like I said, that heat was so last year at that time, man. Like you got to get over it. But that was the best part because I've you've heard I've heard that joke a million times, but never at like 12:05. Speaking of speaking of MMA, have you watched? Did you watch the whole? I mean, this week was amazing. You watched all week long, all three times. I watched. Um, I lost my ass the first night. Um, I don't usually lose that much either. So, I mean, it wasn't a lot, but for me, uh, there were a lot of picks went the other way. Wait, hold on. For 249? Because I lost I lost a decent amount on that one too. Who did you bet on that you lost? I want to see if we're the same. I, I picked the guy opposite of Greg Hardy because this guy had a kickboxing background. He's coming off a fresh knockout. Uh, I think Hardy's skills are still, you know, subpar, but evidently he showed a lot of heart. So I, uh, him, I picked Michelle Waterson. I had Waterson, and she won. She she should have won that decision. That was a bad that was a bad robbery on that decision. I had her winning. I don't know if it was a robbery. She got no power, dude. She's well, she's that, still she's still a point fighter, and that's yeah. that's thing that's something that's played karate fighters all throughout UFC history. They try to do that pitter patter shit. She she couldn't hurt that girl with nothing. She's got all these cool strikes, but none of them fucking hurt. And when you see uh, somebody just walking through their shit. So yeah. For some judges, and you know, there's no like set rules for MMA judges. I think for some judges, they kind of they kind of see through that shit. But I still had her. I still had Waterson winning, and I had Cerrone winning. Cerrone definitely won that fight. Stayed away from that one because that that motherfucker, him and Pettis, you don't know who's going to show up. Either one of yeah. those fights on any day, I knew it was going to be good, but I was like, there's no way I'm. I didn't want to mess up my parlay. On that one, Waterson, I lost my part. On the undercard, it was uh, I had a clean sweep except for them, uh, Waterson. So I did good, but then the main card started and it just went to hell for me because um, I took a risk with um, Dominic Cruz. So, so did I. Uh, I looked at you know who the people he's beat, the caliber of people he's beaten far exceeds Cejudo's, you know, and I was kind of thinking he might can pull off this George St. Pierre, come off this big rest and win. And he was doing decent, you know. He was doing. He was uh, had a good accounting of himself, but uh, you know he lost. Uh, I, I feel like that that shortage. I mean that that stoppage was. He could have went a little longer, but I ain't going to disagree with it at the same time either. So I lost on Ferguson, um, and I shouldn't have bet on that one because when he made weight three weeks prior for like no fucking reason, Just I was like, man, that's kind of uh, that's a lot on your body. You know, cutting weight is fucking brutal. Just absolutely brutal on your body, and I was wondering how that would affect his energy. Number one, his energy output, but even more so, staying that small that long, if it was going to affect his power, and I, I think it really did. That being said, Gaethje also whooped his ass. So who's to say? 
So, like, I, I was with you on a couple of those parlays. Cowboy, I didn't put in all of them. I did put in one. But uh, a lot of them I predicted finishes. And what I do a lot of times with the undercard fighters, the ones that people don't know, I actually go back and look at a lot of their history before UFC because a lot of times it's making them making their debut. So sometimes they'll have guys making their debut that are like 9-0 and with 9 finishes, with 9 submissions against a wet, uh, veteran of the thing. And that guy is the huge underdog because fans don't know who he is. I was like, and then I'll always put this guy in my parlay by submission. And nine out of ten times, like, dude, the guy's won nine for nine for submissions. Like, and he's an underdog? Screw that. And obviously, if you bet the finishes, it goes up. But I actually thought I predicted Cruz a lot in a lot of my parlays by uh, decision. I figured he wasn't going to finish him, wasn't going to submit him, but he would outpoint him if he had his happy feet going, which he did. And I do agree with that. The stoppage. Again, not saying Cejudo wasn't going to keep raining down, but Cruz was literally getting up. How do you stop a fight when the fighter's getting up? Like, you stop it when he's going down, not when he's getting up. So, but then the referees have a thankless job because, like, we, people could yell at them saying, why'd you stop it? Like, why did you stop it? And then you look at uh, Herzog, who was refereeing um, Anthony Smith. Did you see Anthony Smith versus uh, Glover? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, but then it's like, why don't you stop the fight? It's like, so which one, like, do you want him to let it go? Because I, I think Herzog did okay. I blame Smith's corner on that one where it's like, it's your job to protect him. You see the fight's not going to change. He's just getting destroyed. Throw in the towel. Stop the fight. Like, Smith's lion heart is too big to, to, and too proud to say, I quit. He's not going to quit. So you have to now protect him from himself. Where Herzog was giving him, he's like, hey, do something or I'm stopping this fight. And Smith obliged. He started fighting back. He grabbed something, defended himself. So he, he adhered to every warning that he was given, but it was the corner's job. So the referee, a lot of times, is a thankless job. Like, it's either too early, too late, or they, they, they I mean, and it sucks, too, because the ones that do it too early, they do one, and the judges that screw up fighters, because they're not just screwing up a win-loss record. A lot of those fighters, as you know, they get paid double the amount if they win. And if they realistically won the fight, it's like, yo, dude, you're literally screwing with their livelihood. Someone sent me, someone, I don't know if you saw this video and I don't know what fight it was from. Someone sent me a video of Joe Rogan, not from the, the, the past couple of fights, but he was pointing out when the judge, he's like, look at that judge over there. He's not even looking at the fight. He's looking at the floor. And then 30 seconds later, he brings it up again. He's like, he's still looking at the floor. He's not watching the fight. And this guy is in charge of, saying who's winning and losing in a decision. It's crazy. So, yeah, that's what we should do. We should be MMA judges. There seems to be no accountability either for those judges. Like when they blow a, a you know, a decision or whatever, it seems like it's just okay. And that, that's a strange thing. Did you see too, there was a clip of Anthony Smith who was talking to his corner and he's like, my teeth are falling out. Yep. Like this motherfucker's teeth are falling out. Like, hey man, you uh, go out back up. And Joe Rogan pointed out, he's like, when you're in the corner, it was DC. No, Joe Rogan wasn't qualified, it was DC. Where he's like, when you're in the corner and you're telling your corner, my teeth are falling out of my face, that's them basically saying, this fight's over without saying it's over. Like, that's your job is to protect him from himself because he's not going to tap out. You literally have to be like, you're what? You're, dude, you can't continue. This this fight's over, man. And then at, that was after round two. So I think the fight went to round four, if I'm if I remember right. Did Smith go to round four before they stopped it? So I think he took two unnecessary rounds 
of insane punishment and stuff like that. If you go back to Cain Velasquez's third fight against Junior, where Cain, Junior said the, he thought the fight was ended in the second round, he didn't even know those other two rounds occurred that he was in. He was that mangled. And then th that was crazy because then ever since, I, I don't know if you'll agree, I think you will, ever since that last Kane fight with Junior, has Junior ever fought the same? Remember the path to destruction he laid before Kane? Ever since Kane beat him like that, those shots, you can't, it's not a video game, man. Like, I don't know if Smith's going to fully recover from the beating that Glover gave him. And the corner has to take some accountability on that because those last two rounds, that was unnecessary. His teeth were falling out of his face, he said. He's in the corner. Dude, he was literally wobbling completely out in his corner. He's like, you got this, get up, do this, do this. I'm like, the, and even the commentator's like, yo, what are you doing? Don't put him back in there. Like, that was bad, man. That's sad watching stuff like that. Yeah, but also, too, I see you, you. If you watch like Deontay Wilder, he said the same thing. He got so mad that his corner stopped it. Some fighters want to go out. You know, some fighters, that's how they think, you know. And is is until you're in there, you know, we can sit there and talk about who's right or wrong. But I've heard it from both sides. I've heard people, and I kind of agree with it in that, especially in this Anthony Smith uh, situation, you know, you want to protect him. But then, like with the Deontay Wilder, you got an undefeated guy with the world championship. Man, I understand it. Knock me the fuck out to take this from me. As long as I can stand up, let 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 him. In that particular instance, I agreed with Deontay Wilder, even though he was clearly getting his ass tore down. I get it, but you and you're also looking at like the hundreds of millions of dollars that that fight's bringing in. He's getting paid whatever the the difference in paydays. We're talking about a UFC fight night. It's not for the title. It's just a. It's just a. You know a mid-rankings kind of battle between these guys and it's like dude it's not worth it like it's not the the stakes aren't that high for you to risk everything i'd understand if it was john jones and the title it's like yo dude like this is your moment to change your life go out there you're fighting i mean it's like if i was the corner i'd be like yo dude it's not you know what i mean it's not it's not even, for an interim title, title contention's nothing. Like, Anthony Smith is not even close to getting another title shot. What you're saying is if you get banged up on Sunday Night Heat, go ahead and tap out. But if you're in WrestleMania, fight you to death. <laughs> like, yeah, if, if you blow out your knee in a dark match, it's like, it is what it is. Just roll out of the ring, go to the back. If you're in the main event of Mania, yo, tape it up and keep going. <laughs> tape your ACL back together and keep going. I got to tell you, too, though, I've loved... MMA without a crowd. Um, so uh, wrestling without a crowd, hated to death. But MMA, and I'll tell you what, too, I think the fighters are fighting better. And I'll tell you why. Um, you don't have an adrenaline dump without the crowd. Mm. Like, that's a lot of times when you hear people talk about what ring rust is, I don't think people really understand what it is, number one. Like, if you didn't train at all for your comeback match or fight, okay. That's that's ring rust, I guess. But that's just fucking laziness. But right. if you've been in the gym, training, sparring, if you're in the conditioning, you go out there, the only thing you cannot duplicate in a gym is the adrenaline rush of walking out there in front of 20,000 people. That's the only thing you can't duplicate. Everything else you can duplicate. You can full contact spar. You can do your cardio. Can go through the fucking roof. You can get kicked in the head, submitted. All of all of that shit you can do in training. The only thing you can't duplicate is what goes through your body when uh, Buffer is announcing your name and the crowd's going bananas and that damn adrenaline goes through you and you're like fuck yeah. 
Well, when that adrenaline starts to come down, along, along with that comes what's referred to as the adrenaline dump. That's the only thing you can't duplicate. So in these fights, without the crowd, that's not really there. They're not having to deal with that adrenaline dump that they normally get from fighting in front of a crowd. They're actually fighting better. They're more comfortable. They're more at ease. So you, you know, getting your ass whooped in front of 10 people, no big deal. Getting your ass whooped in front of 20,000, that's, that's a little different. I think they're more at ease. I think they're fighting actually better. Yeah. So you think the adrenaline dump is like makes a fighter or even a wrestler like more tired almost like or like what what does that do to the body you think? It's kind of like when you get your second win from like it with the experience you learn to control those emotions and you learn to control that adrenaline a little bit when you walk out there and that crowd's cheering for you you've been there before so it's no big deal you can handle it like when you go out there for that first time, you guys know the first time you go out to a, a WWE audience and there's 20,000 people, there's nothing you can do that can replicate that feeling. And you look over there and you look around at that audience like, holy shit, is that many people? It's a weird feeling. It's a weird sensation. You know, and now they're all cheering for you, you know. And um, I don't know if you guys were ever amateur wrestlers or anything, but like say you were down in a couple points and you're at, you're at your home – uh, home advantage, whatever, and that crowd starts cheering for you, man. There, you get an adrenaline rush from that. You're not going to get that with these fighters here, with the way things are now. And you know what else I noticed that I actually like is uh, they pointed out. I think it was last night's card. I actually I don't even know where this is airing. So it was UFC on ESPN eight. Uh, the the what you call it, Alistair Overeem, Walt Harris card. In one of the earlier fights, I think someone got uh, kicked low, and he took, I think it was that card, where he took almost all, not two and a half minutes to recover, to really let himself hear. Or it might have been the Anthony Smith card. It might have been Anthony Smith. I don't remember. But they pointed out, they said, uh, normally on the live crowd, the fans start booing. And then it forces the fighter, to, before he's long recovered, to say, like, oh, man, I, I, the crowd's booing. Like, I got to get back in there. Like, not, he has up to five minutes with an eye poke or a freaking nut shot to really recover. But when the crowd's booing, a lot of times they jump back in there after 45 seconds. And who knows? Like, if you get hit in the balls really hard, that's brutal. Like, they get forced back in there because, like you said, the crowd is being like, come on, boo, get back in there. And they're crapping on it, and that mentally screws you up. So I almost wonder in the past how many fighters have guy booze that is beyond me how you can be a man and you're booing somebody <laughs> that got kicked in the balls like i just assume that's happened to everybody <laughs> all the guys they should you would almost think they would start chanting take the five men it's <laughs> like they like i understand your pain take it but again these are the same fans they're they're the best and worst, almost like wrestling fans, where it's just like, especially when they're in a 25-minute fight, like they're at the 23-minute mark of just standing there swinging to the fences, and now they're just leaning against the cage, catching their breath, like, boo, come on, do so. It's like, yo, dude, <laughs> go to the gym and hit a heavy bag for 30 seconds straight. Like, come on, these guys just give you blood and sweat and tears for 23 minutes, and now they're resting for more than 10 seconds, and you're, you're crapping on it. You can't imagine how heavy those gloves are after 25 minutes. The lactic acid building up? I mean, yeah, I, no, I can't actually. I boxed a little when I was younger and we didn't have the, the big heavy gloves. We had whatever sparring medium sized gloves were and they just fill up with sweat and just after swinging for a couple of rounds, they feel like fucking boulders. 
Mm-hmm. And so that's why you, if you watch it, and like you just, as soon as you're done with, and we would only spoil, like they would only let us go five rounds max. But like your arms would just be like, oh my God, you know? That's why if you watch fights, they can't wait to get them fucking gloves off. They feel it's, it's, it sounds stupid, but I guarantee they're the heaviest fucking thing in the world at that particular moment. Did you have any, you had some martial arts experience, Pat? No? What did you do? Oh, Take what window, Shane was saying before, I, I'm a, I was a point fighter. <laughs> so it was like, it was before, you know, it was just kind of, it literally two points to the head, one to the body, and that's how you won, just getting points. So it was all finesse. It wasn't, if you actually hurt somebody, you got points taken away. So that was like my competitive stuff. It was just like, you literally didn't want to hit too hard, because there was times where you connect on a head kick, you get the points, but if you really rock someone, they would stop it take away a point i had a buddy that was a point fighter a karate point fighter and it was smooth the technique and all that shit was cool as hell but yeah he he said the same thing like he they weren't concerned with power or knocking you knocking you out like and he could do all of this real quick shit like hit you with his toes you know he put (laughs) his toes on the side of your head and shit real fast but he didn't really he was just that's how he trained wasn't to really hurt you that bad but all he's doing is making that contact is that how you train too yeah, there was, in fact, man, I haven't thought about this forever. I remember one tournament, this was so, it was almost like a, it was almost like a pro wrestling heel tactic. I was fighting a guy, and I was probably, if I was 16 years old, I was probably a buck 60 maybe. And this guy was, had at least, you know, six inches taller than me, um, but it's the same weight class. And what we had on our, on our, our gear, there's a big circle here and two little circles on the side. So you hit here, it's a point. Here's a point. If you get the head with a kick, it's two points, but you couldn't punch to the face. So there's, there's a lot of weird rules with Taekwondo. And this person, th- this guy was taller than me, so like I couldn't, I could connect on a head kick, but if you also throw a head kick and miss, you're off balance, whatever. So he would fight everybody in the tournament like this. He would block, he would literally just kick you and you couldn't get through here. So like, I'm like, all right, like I'm going to lose unless you hit as hard as you can. So I just blast his elbows and his, his arm to get him to open up. And uh, I still lost, but that was my plan. That's the George Foreman. That's how George Foreman fought. Really? Especially in his uh, later years when he came back and beat Michael Moore. You would see him doing a lot of that because his arms, his damn forearms were as big as his biceps, it seems, so he would do a lot of guard like that. Weren't you trying to get into the Viper Fight League, that JBL, OVW, MMA yeah. company that was going to start oh, up? Remember that, Shane? Yeah. You ever hear, did you ever hear like OVW was going to do MMA at one point? So at one point, like, it was right after, like, FCW opened up and they pulled out of there. All of a sudden, they came to us one day and they're like, we're starting an MMA organization. And it was going to be the owner, Danny Davis, with JBL. It was going to, they were going to own this and put MMA fights in the Davis Arena in Kentucky. And they made it you know, clear to us, like a couple of us were like, oh, I wanna do it. And then I remember I pleaded my case. I was like, look, I, w- I wanna wrestle, but you know, can I fight? And they're like, they wouldn't let any of us do it. And it was so crazy because when they started doing the fights, um, they, they weren't really MMA fights. Like there was like, just grappling and they exclude there was like three or four of us that really wanted to fight and but due to like Kentucky's MMA rules at the time they weren't really allowed to have any like UFC style MMA fights the play it didn't it didn't survive very long it was it was rough but wasn't allowed to fight
Are you trying to do more like pain craze? For some, some were like, uh, some were more kickboxing exhibitions, which is what I wanted to do. But some were, we thought it was, we thought it was going to be a pro fight league. But some of them were, yeah, like I guess pain. There were some that was no strikes. It was just grappling, like where you wore, you know, you didn't have any. You just essentially wrestled for points, but it wasn't under wrestling rules. It was like submission only. It was a very strange thing, and it didn't really last very long. But yeah, I tried, but then let me. So Shane. I actually want to talk about something totally random like that I just, I posted it, you commented, I posted it yesterday on Twitter, because I found it and it blew my mind. And I want to, if there is a backstory or anything cool to add to this, I, <laughs> nice. I want, to, I want to know about it. The clip of Johnny the Bull, Johnny Stamboli, gorilla pressing Rikishi, that absolutely blew my mind to a million pieces. And you responded saying, yeah, he was ridiculously strong, stuff like that. Do you remember that day in particular? Because I've never seen that clip. Like, I just want to know if he went up to Rikishi. He's like, I have this idea. I'm going to gorilla press you. And did Rikishi look at him like, no, you're not. <laughs> like, what the hell are you talking about? Uh, 100% that was Johnny the Boy's idea. I could just, just from knowing them both. Um, I can't imagine any scenario in which Rikishi goes up to anybody and goes, I got an idea. <laughs> I want you to gorilla press me. That's not going to happen. But um, Johnny, Johnny was just super strong ass. He was so damn strong. And Johnny was, uh, you know, that was just kind of guy he was. But um, I don't know if I was there for that or if I saw it the next week in catering. But I remember we, we all were just watching it going, and just, um, he was that strong. But, I mean, keep in mind when he did like that leg drop to the floor in WCW and broke his damn urethra apart on a Terry Funk, that was just Johnny. He If he got an idea in his head and wanted to do it, he was going to present it and then go out there and try it. But I, I think, too, that um, they they were playing out in the ring one day, and Johnny was just gorilla pressing heavy-ass people. I remember seeing that at, at one point. It was just, let's find the biggest guy to see who he could gorilla press. I mean, he got them all up. And then I think it was shortly thereafter that that's when the Rikishi spot happened. Holy hell, yeah. No, that, that, that actually blew my mind. Uh, was he a full-blown power plant guy? Like, I don't know. I don't know. Or did he do? I believe so. I can't swear by it, but I believe so. We did a spot in a, at an indie show, and he was Relic, and I was Hurricane. And it was very cool because I really just wanted to have the face off with him with the mask and all of that. We ended up doing a match. And um, he had this chain, and he wrapped it around my neck and threw me over the top rope and was hanging. And, like, the chain, it hooked on my jawbone. So it wasn't really touching my Adam's apple. So there was for a point where I actually was suspending myself just with my jawbone. And uh, it looked so nasty. And I remember I sent it to Jericho, and he's like, man, don't ever do that again. <laughs> so, hey, uh, a couple of months ago, I actually, I forget what it was. I don't know if I posted on some form of social media. I think it was Facebook. I said, one of my bucket list things, I said, you and I, we've known each other for decades now, two decades almost and we've never even, we've been on a million shows together, but we've never even been in the same ring. I said, got to but again, now you were with WWE. So I was like, well, I mean, maybe one day, somehow, some way it'll happen. Well, you're gearing up to come back. I'm gearing up to come back. It looks like I got to check that bucket list. Uh, Hurricane KM, uh, gr grizzled veteran. Pat's never wrestled Lance, so it's the Hurry League. Look at you trying to weasel I'll a tag match. A tag. <laughs> yeah. And are you going to be nice and let Lance do the brunt of the work? You know, just be a good guy? It depends on if I want the match to be good. If it does, I have to do all the work. No, but Pat, I know Pat wants his singles with Lance, but I, at first I was like, actually, I, would not, I don't mind that. Not but I mean, either. 
you have you've had so many tag team partners. Like you could almost like you know pick and choose. Like well, there's one time I teamed with this person. Oh, we could revise this one. All these different weird tag names you had with these people over the years. No matter which state you go to, like oh wait, we're in the Carolinas. Shadow Moore. Yeah, I'll get him. I'll get him. What happened to Evan Courageous? Where's he? Uh, Evan's still in uh, North Carolina. He lives in uh, Gastonia. He's a um, he's an accounting accountant so oh i did i remember i saw a picture a long time ago yeah old dapper in the suit and stuff is he still jacked up that guy's body at one point was probably in the top of wc we were talking about on another episode we were talking about guys that had insane physiques i remember in his peak evan courageous was in ridiculous shape he had the, he had the best abs in the business oh, uh, and I, I think even historically i think you go rick rude and then you go evan courageous in terms of abs Yo, so real quick, uh, in uh, WCW, when you started doing the vertebraker, you were probably one of the first ones to really do that move. Uh, I think it, if I'm not mistaken, that, that originated, because at least Homicide told me, it was a female Japanese wrestler. Is that is that accurate? The Kudo driver. I think I was the first one to get it over in North America, but it was the uh, Kudo driver in Japan. And when I first saw her do it, uh, she didn't have even actually plan them. She kind of picked them up and went down into a pen. I was like, oh, man, I bet I could plan them. And then I don't know if she just did that for that one match because then I watch other matches where she's actually planted them. And um, so in WCW, uh, either 99 or 2000, when I started doing it there, I had did it on the indies. I'm not sure if Omega or just some random indie. I had did it maybe two times at the most. And then when I got to WCW, it just didn't really fit anywhere, you know, and to be honest with you, all the kind of shit we were doing with the Young Dragons. So I might probably just fucking forgot that I even did it. And then I saw Mike Modest do it in a dark match. I was like, fuck, I used to do that shit. And, um, and this was when I was really starting to, I needed to figure out, I needed to uh, kind of go off on my own in three count. Because Shannon could fly and Evan could fly, but neither one of them could really wrestle. And so I was being re regulated to doing all the detail work. Well, the detail work doesn't get the pops. Although we tell the story, you know, and and I could tell that the office was kind of, you know, uh, paying more attention to those guys because of that. Even though I'm the one putting the matches together and right. telling, hey, you uh, you need to do something here. You need to do something here. And I'm doing all the details. The boys were picking up on it, uh, the other guys in the locker room. But it didn't seem like the office was. So it became a point where I go, you know what, fuck this. I got to, you know, I got to make sure that they see me, too. And so that's when I started to really kind of take off a of sugar shane. And when I brought the vertebraker back, that really just said that made me a threat. And I like to compare it to uh, years later when Ray started doing his 619. Ray went from a guy that just did flip, flop, fly to a guy who can knock your ass out. And yeah. so the perception of Ray changed a lot just by adding that one move to his arsenal. And that's that's um, advice I've given to a lot of guys. So I'm like, yeah, you got the flashy, but you need something fucking nasty. You need that nastiness that you can go out there and you can be a threat. Once I started doing the vertebraker, that really just put me in a different conversation than all the other cruiserweights because every single one of them was just so concerned with the flips. None of them could hurt you. The vertebraker, I could actually hurt you. And that just made my whole perception seem different. Yo, uh, so actually, because I was a big WCW guy, 
uh, what you call it, one of my favorite matches, ironically, was Noble Courageous, Young Dragons, and I'm sure you get that a lot in three count, uh, well, you and Shannon uh, in, the, in the ladder match. Uh, what you call it, did you guys, I mean, you guys look like you killed each other. Coming out of that match, did any of you guys actually sustain real, like, legit injuries? Because it looked like you guys literally killed each other in that match. We were beat to fucking death, yeah. You know, I don't know about... I don't know if anybody had broken bones or lacerations, but just a lot of impact. If you go back and watch, when we have all the ladders in the ring, and that was a pretty solid ring anyway, where there's so much weight in it that the ring's actually compressed. So whatever bump you're going to get out of it is diminished now because it's just solid rock. Mm-hmm. And so when I give, um, who was it? When I gave Noble, when we built the bridge, the scaffold with the ladders, and I gave him that big neck breaker off the uh, ladders into the ring. It just looks like concrete. The ring doesn't budge. You just see our bodies bounce. And uh, Jamie goes, you know, everybody called me Sugar back then. And Jamie goes, Sugar, are you okay? And I go, I don't know. <laughs> I just felt like my damn, I felt like my insides had turned around. I was like, fuck. But that was really, man, those matches, they take, they take some shit out of you. Yeah, that was a big, I was a big WCD guy. I do appreciate that stuff. So I always look back and I was, like I said, growing up, I, when WWF, I grew up watching obviously WWF, but then mid nineties, it turned into a hardcore ECW and then the WCW boom. And I was really, and I, I still watched WWF at the time, but they were, they were third string. It was like ECW, WCW, I was glued to, and then WWF watching the hog pen matches and stuff like that. I mean, that's TL Hopper, Freddie Joe Floyd, that's around that era, but I was, then I slowly started watching everything, but I was a huge WCW guy, so I remember all that stuff like it yesterday, so I appreciate those matches, man. I remember them well. You, you killed yourself for my entertainment. Now you got to get in the ring, and me and you got to do this <laughs> ladder match. So let's do it again. Let's do it again. We'll do the tag ladder match. Yeah, we'll have a real a stepladder match, like a real small one. <laughs> Somebody said, uh, Dan Mob said it the other day, because I posted a picture of me and my gear flexing, and then he wrote, grizzled and chiseled. I said, I deleted his comment, because I was like, I might make that a shirt or something. I might steal that. I didn't want anybody else to see it. As I'm advertising it on this podcast for the rest of the world to hear it, <laughs> Shane's going to, on his Pro Wrestling tea store, by the time I get home, grizzled and chiseled. <laughs> a good way to wrap up. Um, or a story I don't think I've ever told is that you two are indirectly responsible for getting me lining things up to where I got my job this year. Wait, Do you know what? That? Do you ever think Wait. about that? You know the stories, but you don't. I don't think you put that together. Job with WWE? Yeah. How much? How am I involved in that? Here's here's a crazy. Yeah, I just and I think it's appropriate because you guys are both on. So I want to say Mania Thirty Five, the New York one. Um, a couple weeks before, I was guest training at the PC and um, came home and Hawkins was like, hey, they need someone to go to, to go to MetLife to have a match the night before Mania to test the cameras and audio out. Uh, you know, do you, want, do you and Kevin want to do it? So Hawkins asked me, me and Kev to go. So like, yeah, sure, you know, I'll, I'll go to it, no problem. Um, I go there and... Uh, I got there, I think, what was call time? Four o'clock? I don't know, but I was late and I missed it. That's, that's what my, I got My so, mania moment. <laughs> well, this is why. Think about this is what's When I think about it, I'm like, wow, that's weird. So call time is four o'clock to go and have this match at, at MetLife. And I'm like, all right, this will be cool. And I, I, get, I get there at like 3, 3, 3.15. It takes me like half an hour to get through security. Nobody knows what's going on. 
Finally, I get to the ring, and Kevin gets there about, what, 3.30, 3.40? Whatever call time was. I got there around that time a little bit before, but I couldn't figure out where to park and how to go in. So And they had extra security. It was like, it was a, it's, it's yeah. MetLife Stadium. It's yeah. huge. So I'm standing by the ring, and I could tell the camera guys are getting a little, like, antsy. Like, you know, hey, where's the guy you're supposed to wrestle? I'm like, I don't know. So after a while, I, was, I could tell they're being kind of, I'm like, do you want me to go and wrestle myself for three minutes? And they're like, yeah, can you please? Sure. So I wrestled the Invisible Man at MetLife for three, four minutes, bumping around, doing all that, whatever. And um, they were like, okay, that's great, thank you. So I leave, whatever, and Kevin actually never got in. But what I didn't know is a couple, like a week or two later, I get an email saying, you know, hey, uh, you've been, whatever, to be an extra at Boston or something. And I'm like, that's, I haven't been an extra in like eight years eight to ten years or something like that like that's kind of random and i thought it was kind of funny so i wrote to talent relations i was like hey like you know i just uh i was coaching at the pc i got an i got an email to be an extra should i go to is is that a mistake so nobody wrote me back so i'm like yeah i'll go anyway and when i went there i run into shane and shane comes out to me and shane goes hey do you know any of the other extras i go no not really he's like he's like we need we need two of them to have a match in front of hunter to test the camera equipment for the third hour of Raw. I'm like, I'll do it. So uh, I get dressed. I find one of the other guys. I think his name was Chico Adams. And it was during that match that started different conversations that put things. So anyway, I was found out I was booked to be an extra because they felt bad that I had to bump by myself and wrestle myself at MetLife. So if that didn't happen, I wouldn't have gone there, which then he put me in that. And then it led to... I think, I think you still would have wound up there. Well, I, I just think it's funny looking back, like the exact after you know eighteen years of doing this. That's how that lined up so, to. Them. So so wait, let me get this straight. We had Colby on an episode, and he credited me for his shtick or gave me a big chunk of credit for what he is today. And now you're here saying that I'm solely responsible for you working for the. Oh, that's solely <laughs> no, butterfly effect. I'm not even responsible. One percent, <laughs> man. I'm not taking any credit for that. So thanks, guys. Thank you, guys. You're saying because because of. I think the match you had by yourself Shut up. So, was so much better than what you would have had with Kevin. That's why I said I knew where he was going. But I do remember in Boston, though, Hunter actually came up to me specifically and goes, Hurricane, go find uh, two guys because we had talked in a production meeting. The third hour of Raw was going to be lit differently. Right. You remember that? Yeah. There was, a, I mean, it happened on TV a couple of times that the third hour of Raw was going to be grittier and I don't know what the yeah. fuck I'm going for. Um, but so, yeah, and so then when I look and so, and if you've ever picked out extras, I go, okay, if I know, I know this guy's good. You know, because anytime you got to pick out an extra for a segment, it, sometimes it sucks because a, a lot of these guys, they want just one opportunity, one chance. Mm -hmm. And there'll be 15 of them and you got to pick two. Right. Now the two are going to like you. And the other 13 are going to think you're a jackass for not picking them. So it's <laughs> a tough situation. But you have to pick the two that you think can, can do it, can perform and do whatever – assignment you know that, that you're asking them to do so i knew you could and so that was the thing i was like okay i know this guy's good and so i went over there and said hey man who else can you do and all that and i also was like uh because of your experience i didn't like i didn't want you to think uh that that was beneath you i was i remember thinking that i hope he doesn't think this is beneath him or that i think any less of him by asking him to do this but I know I'd, I'd wanted you to have that opportunity because you never know. 
in the business is so damn crazy. They can see somebody and go, you know what? See something with that guy. You, even you never know who the fuck is watching. To cut you, to cut you off, you even, I even said, I said, well, should I just go in with my, my gym stuff? And you go, bro, you never know who's watching. Get your full gear on. And I was like, all right, cool, yeah. yeah. All right, cool, yeah. yeah. And you did. You got that damn uh, the single, the single shoulder gimmick, which I love, right? One strap, yeah. Yep. You know, Shane, when Pat got me booked as an extra, and remember when I did my Congo line, it's still the one that's still being talked about to this day. Remember I crushed it with the Congo line? Big stuff. I didn't even bring my gear. Not in the building. It wasn't even in my car. Like, I, when it came time to pack my clothes, I looked, I laughed. I was like, there's no, I'm not bringing my gear. I'm not even getting in the ring with it. I'm not even doing it. Worker rule number one, when we tell the students, always bring your gear. I, my gear was nowhere to be found. I didn't even pay, they didn't even let me get the physical. They didn't even let me in the room. They came out and said, like, we looked at your records. Like, you can't, we can't look at, we can't even look at you. So I hope that any young wrestlers listening to this <laughs> understand the advice you're getting from one side of this conversation to the absolute terrible advice you're getting on the other side. Well, Pat actually, he's like, he, same thing when you said you, you didn't want it to be beneath him. He, I felt like he was reluctant. He's like, yo, would you do the Congo line? And I was like, hell yeah, I'll do the Congo line. I said, what are you kidding me? Yo, dude, I, we were joking before, bringing No Way Jose. I'll do the Congo line in, in Rahway for WrestlePro too. <laughs> I'll come out jamming to that bad boy. Hell yeah. No shame. The way I saw it, look. One, people take themselves too seriously. I get it if it was, you know, freaking someone that's made it to a certain level coming out. You know, like, Kurt Hawkins can't be on TV one week and come out on the Congo line. It doesn't make any sense. But for me, listen, I'm never going to wrestle in Nassau Coliseum. Probably not if I had to take a guess. I'm physically there. Why, why not? Why not? Why so serious? Of course, yeah. I had a great time. Dude, I got blown up doing that dance around the ring. That thing's no joke. <laughs> like, I'm not, you know, I, I told our other guys, because a couple of them were our kids, and as I'm dancing, and because you have to, then when you're on the outside, you're just standing in motion just to keep dancing. And I was like, <gasps> I was like, come on, because I was so out of shape, too. I was like, yo, dude, come on. I just want to go to the back. I was like, I'm so blown up right now. And then we danced our way to the back. I was like, woof. Yeah, those combo line people don't get enough credit, man. That's a hell of a, <laughs> that takes a lot of talent. That's a hell of a workout. Pat, that same day was the first time I mentioned you as a producer to Johnny. Was the oh, same day you. that you had that. Uh, thank you. That, that you did the uh, dark uh, match thing with them um, for hundred for whatever for all. I mentioned you to Johnny there. That was the first time. Well, from from me doing the Congo line, you told him I should be hired as a producer. I appreciate that. Yeah, I never I never mentioned you to Johnny. I knew better than that. From what I know, he actually likes me. Every time he sees me, he always remembers my name and stuff like that. I, I, I never, I never heard him say anything bad. I mentioned, I suggested three people to be producers: uh, Pat, uh, Lance Storm, and MVP. Oh wow! So you're three for three. Wow, that's cool. Damn, that helps. MVP is there still working, and I'm home. <laughs> right. Uh, Crazy man. I'm so happy he's getting out. Yeah, uh, that managerial role uh, is going to be good for him. I think. Yeah, he's he's he can talk, man. He can talk, and he can take he can take bumps. You know, that's uh, right. if you remember in TNA, I was being a manager, and I wanted to be a manager that can bump because uh, that's the one knock, and it's not even a knock, but it's just something that is. With Paul Heyman, as great as a, a talker that he is, there's no payoff because he can't get bumped, can't be touched. Never thought you of know, that. so so he's just never going to get he he gets the heat, but it's no payoff. I thought about that too recently with uh, AEW when they brought back Jake. And I don't know if Jake can be touched or not. I feel like medically, medical wise, like I feel like I've heard before that he should be bumping. So I don't know, but he's out there getting that good heat. And that's immediately, that immediately made me think of Paul. I'm like, but where's the payoff?
Yeah, but that's one actually, thing that we do. Like we do that the most in the business with the hill commentators, because every show has to have a hill commentator just out there talking shit, and nobody ever goes and knocks him out. <laughs> See, Jerry got away with that. Jerry Lawler got away with it for years because Jerry would get in the ring, right? And there would be a payoff. Mm. But now, like even on the indie shows, there's some hill commentator just burying people. He doesn't have a resume. Never did anything to even be talking shit about the people. Well, at least Jerry had this massive background or Jesse Ventura had a great background yeah. or, you know, th those are the two guys for me that kind of made the heel commentating thing really work. Um, but they will find a way to put over the baby faces at the same time. But especially with Jerry, there was that payoff. But anyway, with MVP, now that he can bump, he can go out there and talk all that trash and there, there will be a payoff for him. So any, thanks for being with us, Shane. Anything you want to uh, plug or... Nope. All right. <laughs> no, no. Um, just welcome to the podcast game. I just celebrated 10 years. Wow. Uh, yeah, because I first started Highway to Helms back in 2010 when I got fired from WWE for the first time. Okay. And so, uh, so every 10 years, apparently, I get let go from them. Um, <laughs> Very cool. Man. I love that you laughed at that. Um, but uh, yeah, just uh, Howie the Helms is what I'm doing now. I'm starting to do watch-alongs on Twitch. I just did one on SmackDown where I did uh, why I would do like Booker T-style commentary over the matches, and that was fun as shit. You know, it's just me being an idiot. You know, just, you know, something to put it, content for the fans uh, during the furlough. But other than that, I just sit at home and uh, play with myself. For those listening, he has an action figure that he's holding up. Thanks for clarifying. <laughs> Thanks again, man. I hope I see you again real soon, whether it be up there or an independent show or across the ring from Kevin and I. So uh, thanks again, man, and we'll see you soon. And you guys stay cool. You too. That heat's last year, bro. It was very last year. Get over it. Buzz killer.